When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Well, that is the story of human progress. One inch at a time. I'm your host, Joe DiStefano, and you're listening to Stack. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Big announcement. I'm not sure if you were here last week, but this podcast is about to go through a rebrand and a title change, and I'm super excited about it. It's happening in about three episodes from now. Uh, All of a sudden, you're just going to see a new podcast title appear. I'm going to keep the image pretty much the same for at least a couple of months so people can get used to it, Uh, but that's coming. So super important that right now, wherever you download these shows, you just go subscribe. Uh, Maybe subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever else you may download these shows, because I don't want to lose you. Uh, if um, I'm not sure what exactly happens when we change the title and try not to change anything else, but who knows? Maybe you'll drop off, but I don't think so. Uh, grab alerts where you can. Uh, this is a really exciting shift for me. It's a necessary shift. I just feel, um, you know, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, and it's finally time. My intention here is to usher in just a new level of creativity, purpose, and intention to this podcast while, of course, staying true to what's always made stacked what it is. Lots of talk of health, breath, kettlebells, free medicine, minimalist footwear, uh, etc. This low-hanging fruit, these amazing practices and tools that we most of us have that we can really get a lot of benefit out of if we don't complicate the hell out of them and overthink them, right? Uh, and honestly, the world has changed a lot in recent times. And for true health seekers, people like you and I, The terrain is getting increasingly challenging to navigate, and difficult times require more physical and emotional strength and more sort of robust connection with ourselves and kind of more devout faith in our intuitive senses and higher purpose. And that's what the new podcast is going to be focused on helping you build or um, minimally helping you with that journey into that expanded awareness and um, greater strength. I'm super excited about it, guys, and uh, I would tell you the new name, but I don't want to just yet. I want it to be a little bit of a surprise, but while we're here, go subscribe right now on all those favorite platforms of yours, and don't miss a beat. Now, moving on, this podcast, I'm super excited to be bringing back. This is an episode that I recorded way back in 2020 with Dr. Stuart McGill. It was episode 53 on the podcast, and lately, I've been sending it around to so many people, I just decided I should reshare it. So here it is. If you're new to this podcast, You no longer have to go through and scroll through 200 shows to try to find the low back episode. Uh, It's right here for you. So I really, really hope you enjoy it. And last quick announcement here. If you have not checked out Runga, uh, my amazing wellness events company that my wife and I share and just are so fortunate to work with about 100 people a year uh, through our Runga brand, you can head on over to rungalife.com. Once you're there, click join at the top and then click the gathering. We've got two gatherings this year. My good friend Ben Greenfield is going to be at both of them alongside a whole bunch of other health and wellness influencers uh, and just amazing people, just inspiring people. A lot of couples come through Runga gatherings to deepen their connections that we get a lot of health and wellness entrepreneurs looking for new levels of inspiration and to connect with like minds. We get a lot of busy professionals, CEOs, entrepreneurs that are just in need of a quick mind-body reboot that's a little bit close to home so they don't have to you know, fly down to Peru or something to get a little break, uh, or just 
regular people, a lot of people that are going through a life change, if they're going through, you know, they're about to start a new job and they want to really revitalize their cellular health, or maybe they're going through a divorce and they really need to kind of feel grounded in something, especially in self. All of those types of people fit in perfectly at Runga. And we do our absolute best to curate just the most magical group we possibly can from all the people that apply every year. So if this sounds like something you are into, head on over to rungalive.com. Click on over to the gathering. Check out all the amazing things we include from chef-prepared meals to uh, you know, hyperbaric oxygen and anti-aging therapeutic injections and, of course, liposomal supplements from Quicksilver Scientific, HBOTS, the works, guys. So check it out. Submit an application if it feels right for you. And I'm sure if you're an avid listener to this podcast, uh, you'll probably be hearing from our team real soon when we invite you to join us either this May or this October. Wink, wink. We're doing two this year. We're super excited. So head on over to rungalife.com and hopefully I'll see you later. And just before we get started on today's podcast, if you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy, and a calmer, more stable mood, then you should make sure you are supplementing with magnesium daily. Let me tell you why. About 75% of people are magnesium deficient. This deficiency can lead to higher levels of anxiety, irritability, trouble sleeping, and low, low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep, like restless leg syndrome. Now, you might be wondering, does magnesium really affect all those things? And the answer is yes. In fact, magnesium is involved in over 300 chemical reactions inside of your body. So a lot of different things can go wrong when you're deficient. The good news is, is that you can experience a number of positive health benefits from just getting enough magnesium. It's like that first domino that falls, and all of a sudden, you have 300 chemical reactions inside your body that are working better. Better sleep, more energy, stronger bones, healthier blood pressure, less irritability, a calmer mind, reduced cramping, less of that less restless leg syndrome, even fewer migraines. If you suffer from migraines, magnesium can help. But to experience all of the health benefits you have to gain, you need the right types of magnesium. The truth is most magnesium supplements that you find in health food stores and online uh, use only the cheapest, maybe one or two forms of synthetic magnesium. And since they're not full spectrum, they're not giving you all the different types of magnesium, they're not going to fix a deficiency or do much to support all of those parts of your health. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to really experience its calming health-enhancing effects. That is why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep, all in one capsule. Simply take two before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed at the improvements in your mood and your energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer, only for my listeners, head on over to magbreakthrough.com slash stacked. That's magbreakthrough.com slash S-T-A-C-K-E-D. And use code STACKED10 during checkout to save an additional 10% plus get free shipping. All right, guys, now let's jump into the show with Dr. Stuart McGill. Professor McGill, I am psyched to be chatting with you today as I have uh, followed your work for a long time and just recently read your book, Back Mechanic, which I've now sent to at least five or six people with a, a note that 
that simply states a better book on low back pain will never be written. I think, <laughs> I think uh, you dive into just so many of the things in this book that people need to know and, and absolutely need to hear. Uh, and so I am very grateful and excited to be chatting with you today. And, and thank you for your work. And thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Good morning to you from uh, Canada to Luxembourg. Yeah, it's a, it's a long distance call, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, I, uh, we actually lived in Switzerland in 1994. I was a visiting professor at the uh, Bern University uh, School of Medicine. Wow. And uh, we, we quite enjoyed it. So I, I know a little bit about your culture and... Uh, geography etc yeah well that's that's really interesting and you know i would it's funny it's not mike i grew up in boston so everyone knows it's funny the people that i meet here the first thing they say is just oh my gosh you're obviously an american <laughs> it's a, it's been kind of a unique kind of a fun little experiment here these past six months or so well, you don't give it away. You should have said, I'm from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so funny is, not to get off topic, and I, I know your son's from New York or lives in New York, but there's a strange amount of Yankees hats around here. And I have yet to see a Red Sox hat. That My, my wife, Amelia, always kind of razzes me about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, as we kind of go into the show... Uh, should I call you Professor McGill? What, what would you prefer to be called here? And even for the audience, when they're telling people about this podcast and sending it to anyone they know with low back pain, what should they call you? Well, my mother calls me Stuart, but why don't you call me Stu? Still, still. <laughs> All right, perfect. And now, Stu, so... For people that don't know about your work, and of course, I, I just did an intro for this show, so people heard a little bit about you, but, and you just mentioned the Switzerland, you know, teaching uh, stint that you did. It's, so could you give people just a little bit of an overview of how you sort of have evolved into the guy that I consider to be the world's absolute foremost expert in spine health? And... And maybe as we kind of go into this, because I am so excited, I have so many notes to go through with you, maybe you could kick off our conversation with just uh, like a real high level um, kind of summation of your philosophy around low back pathology and treatment, maybe even as in, uh, as, in as few words as possible might be fun. All right. Well, I was a professor of spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo for just over 30 years. I retired three years ago, and now I just see patients uh, here at uh, BackFit Pro who aren't the average person with back pain, but they are usually high performers really struggling with pain that is inhibiting or making their lives miserable. Uh, throughout that time, uh, we appreciated that all back pain has a cause. So if you want a foundational philosophy, there's a beginning. It's not random. Uh, what this requires is the person has a thorough assessment. Now, that's very hard to find in the traditional healthcare spectrum because clinicians are taught techniques or uh, they use tools and uh, 
it's it's and and that's what they're paid for. They're paid to provide a specific technique or tool which has a billing code and that's how they get paid. So if you go to a certain type of clinician, you will get whatever their tool and billing code is whether it matches or not. So if it matches, it's dumb luck. That's great. You'll you'll and you'll do well. But if you don't do well, you're now at a loss. Uh, you might uh, be be blamed as a patient, actually. Oh, your back pain didn't improve. The pain, therefore, must be psychological or you're magnifying your pain when, in fact, it was just uh, a treatment approach that wasn't matched to the actual mechanism. So we begin with a very thorough assessment, and then the next most important thing is not to do exercises or anything else. It's to remove the cause. Most back pain starts with a stress concentration because of a chronic movement habit or an occupation or some feature that causes a stress concentration that when you replicate that stress in the assessment, it causes the pain. And when you take it away, their pain uh, goes away. So we then work on uh, removing the cause. We use things like uh, spine hygiene, which are movement hacks, if you will, to uh, learn to pick your child out of the crib at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, I think that's something that might be relevant for you <laughs> and do it in a way that doesn't replicate your back pain trigger. So there is a biohack so that you don't tenderize the tissues that are sensitive and uh, the person may have a, a neural central sensitization to their back pain as well. But point is, stop picking away at the proverbial scab and the pain sensitivity will subside. And the next part of it is we live in a linkage. That linkage requires strategic mobility and stability throughout the linkage to create efficient movement. So then we optimize that for the person and uh, create the foundation for pain-free movement. And then finally, stage four, we can then uh, really understand what the demands of their athletic life is. And now we build uh, their capacity to meet those specific demands. So is, is that a high enough level with enough detail, but short enough. <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Uh, still just perfect. Now, because you mentioned it, you know, I do have a, he just turned two months old. And uh, so maybe selfishly, I'll, I'll kind of kick us off just with this, uh, with a question for you, because with this linkage, I'm watching, you know, my baby boy, kind of move and, and pick up his head and begin to figure out his hands. And, and selfishly, I'll ask this linkage, this mo mobility and stability, if I'm not mistaken, we're learning a lot of those patterns that we're going to take into adulthood when we're two months old. And my next part of this question is what are some things that people like me might do with an infant that might not be great for their spine later? And then once I get over the selfish stuff, I'll get into the, the bracing and the breathing and the biomechanics with you. 
Yeah, that's not something that I spent a lot of time uh, probing and uh, studying. Um, what I can say, though, is when they're just a little bit older, now they're three and four years of age, um, I'll see parents taking their kids out, uh, j just to use a, a summertime example, you know, on these tubes that they pull behind boats? Yeah. And I watch those little heads snapping back and forth on the body, yeah. just getting whiplashed. It's insanity. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, of course the parent doesn't want to whiplash their child, but they are so unaware of what they are doing. Uh, th so there's an example of a little bit older, but in terms of uh, an infant, just let them move and uh, encourage them to move. And then as they get older, continue to create the opportunities to expose them to a variety of movements. Uh, my kids, for example, had to walk to school. Mom didn't drive them. Now, the kids would complain, uh, but it was a heartbreaker for me to when I did go to uh, the kids' schools to see the kids waddling out of their mother's cars to class. Uh, and, and, and what happened on our university campus right around, well, it was in the 90s. And uh, we used to document the body mass index and strength and some general fitness parameters of every incoming student. There was a step change when personal computers became widely uh, available. Uh, so these are all things, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but uh, keep exposing them to different types of movement challenges and encourage them to build a skilled repertoire. They are building engrams, muscle memories, uh, that involve all aspects of athleticism, including balance, uh, learning how to efficiently drive force, uh, etc. Anyway, there's, oh, and by the way, the, the last bit that just came to mind is the tissue adaptation uh, side of things as well. Uh, starving children from uh, impact uh, running, jumping, uh, etc., is uh, really um, not creating the mechanostimulation that they need to develop good, dense, robust bones. Uh, the adolescent female, for example, the time for her to develop the most robust bone to serve her well when the osteoporotic years come in the fifth and sixth decade was determined by how active they were when they were 15. Wow. Um, well, that so, so if you're not active enough as a young girl, then you're going to pay the price later and there's not a whole lot in between that you can do about it? Is that? Well, that's what the data is showing. The time that is most osteogenic for her bones is when she's an adolescent. That influence carries through uh, her life. And of course, there are things that she can do throughout her lifetime, but it's an uphill battle 
if they start with frail bones as uh, teenagers, not being exposed to the uh, mechanostimulation. Yeah, it makes makes total sense. And and yeah, the sort of philosophy that we're using for our son is trying not to put him in positions he can't get into on his own. So we're breaking that that with tummy time because, you know, I was chatting with a few of my friends and that are, you know, work with kids and all this, and they've explained how important it is to get that started early. And and if you have an opinion on that, that'd be terrific. But, but as we kind of prepare for him, you know, becoming mobile, et cetera, um, you know, not putting him on the couch, sitting like an adult as an example, because he can't get into that position. That's been kind of our, our guiding light. Now, one of the big things about your work, Stu, is just over the years, I've followed it and this bracing, um, this, this concept of bracing, because when I first started my career as a personal trainer, crazy, almost 20 years ago now, I was taught to activate the core, draw in the belly button towards the spine. And when I watch my baby boy breathe, his belly button is doing anything but going in. <laughs> he is he is expanding in every direction with with each breath. And, and I know this is a big part of your contribution to uh, personal training. And, and now I'm a big kettlebell guy. So kettlebells, it is just, you know, one of the most fundamental principles in the world. And I know it was your work. Can you tell us a little bit about bracing and how breathing kind of plays into spinal health? Wow, that's a a huge start. Well, let's let's start with bracing then, uh, because this is taken so out of context. Because we live in a linkage, in order to create force in your hands or your feet, the distal part of the linkage, you had to create proximal stiffness. So consider this. If I say, say we both worked hard and we could bench press uh, 200 kilos, wouldn't that be fabulous? (laughs) Now, if I used my pec major and anterior deltoid, which is my bench press muscle, so to speak, to push you or you were to push me, the pec major crossing the shoulder distally causes arm flexion and will facilitate the push. Fabulous. But proximal to the ball and socket joint, which is the shoulder, it bends the rib cage towards my shoulder. So if all I use is my 400 pound bench press to push you, my arm flexes, but my rib cage collapses towards the joint. So I've got energy production, but I've also got an energy leak. Do do you follow the analogy here? Yes. So if we can create proximal stiffness in the linkage, I stiffen the core. Now, 100% of that force and shortening effort of pec major is directed to propelling my arm. I have zero energy leak on the proximal side. So if I wanted to wiggle my finger very, very quickly, I had to stiffen my wrist. If I want to move my wrist very quickly, I had to stiffen my elbow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The mother of all proximal stiffness and foundation of movement performance is what is known as the core. Now, I hate that word, but let's just say it's, it's, it's the torso for now. The next question is, what is the most efficient, uh, spine-sparing, performance-enhancing way to stiffen the core 
to increase power flow across the hips to distal regions to propel the legs, uh, across the shoulder joints to propel the arms. So there's, there's no coincidence that there's a ball and socket joint at either end of the core. Uh, the uh, abdominal brace... Uh, it, it actually came from Australia, this idea of drawing in the abdominals to activate transverse abdominus, but they never measured the role of those individual muscles. So when I was a visiting professor uh, in, in Bern in 94, our job there was to implant intramuscular electrodes for the first time into the many deep muscles of the uh, spine and the abdominal wall to see how the neurological system did it. So uh, you have made a observation in your son that when their lungs fill, the, uh, fill with air, they expand. Um, so the most efficient bracing technique is not to draw in the abdominals that is inhibiting of performance i'll you can do this experiment if you like sit on a chair and suck in your belly and try and squat up and you'll find you're inhibited but when you stiffen your belly and even push it out you will then get an enhancement of uh, hip power production etc so here's a coaching cue for you take your fingers place them lateral to the navel, but quite lateral around your belly, probably 15, 20 centimeters lateral to the navel. Push your fingers into your belly quite robustly. Now push them out with abdominal wall contraction. So there is the beginning of the brace. But now the question is to tune it. So if you're running uh, as, say, a, a distance runner, you don't want much bracing. There will be a tone there, but there's certainly an entrainment to the stride and the breathing cycle and that kind of thing. But now let's take another type of athlete, a power lifter, uh, for example, who would be the polar opposite. They don't breathe. They lock down their core activation. If they're trying to squat uh, 1,150 pounds, which some of our athletes do, they fill the lungs to about 70% of tidal volume and they lock it down with a very, very uh, intense brace because they have to stiffen that spine to prevent joint micro movements, uh, etc. Micro movement, by the way, under that kind of load just shuts down neural drive it, it it will cause failure uh in the lift so in that case the br the bracing is extremely uh robust if i take someone like a tennis player and you'll hear them grunt when they uh serve a tennis ball for example now we can start putting together breathing and bracing when you measure uh, an athlete breathing, and now they're at pace. They are. Uh, they've got uh, heart rate elevated. Breathing is elevated. They might be running or playing a field sport, for example. Uh, or, or let's continue on with the tennis example. Air goes into the lungs and out of the lungs. Well, if you measure that torso and core stiffness and stability naturally increases when you fill the lungs with air. It compresses the belly and uh, expands the chest. That is stiffening 
and creating the proximal stiffness that I was talking about earlier. Now let's fuse in breathing. When you're challenged breathing, uh, well, I'll back up a bit. When you're normally breathing, the diaphragm contracts to draw air into the lungs. That creates an elastic uh, storage and then the elastic recoil assists the breathing muscles in squeezing air out of the lungs. But when you're challenged breathing, there is a pulse at the beginning of exhalation, and it's known as active respiration. So I'm going to try and do this on the microphone. I'm going to suck in, and then there is a little bit of a charge from the intercostals and the abdominal wall at the very beginning of that exhalation cycle. Now I'm going to grunt. So if you're a strong first kettlebell man, you will know that this is power breathing. That instant of the initial muscular charge super drives the stiffness. So if you're Venus Williams serving a tennis ball, when she grunts at the beginning of the serve, that super stiffens the core, eliminates the energy leaks so that the muscles crossing her shoulder send full power across the shoulder. The arm starts its whip with a little more velocity and she will get through the whip to the racket a few more miles an hour on the ball. So there's just a start of the intricacies of bracing and breathing and oh, I could get into sprinting, uh, how in MMA, for example, the great athletes on the ground when they're playing jujitsu, how they are timing the breath of an opponent to either escape a submission or to lock in a submission. They are boa constrictors, just, just waiting for that magical compromise of an athlete getting a little bit sloppy, failing to breathe behind the shield, that slight loss of stiffness, and then all of a sudden you're in an arm bar or a kimura or something like this, and it's game over. So we, we can – oh, maybe this is uh, – of interest because of your expertise in endurance exercise and, and being a kettlebell man and whatnot. If uh, you've been uh, following Pavel Sotsilin, who's the, the chairman of Strong First, who we both know, Pavel's been a great friend of mine for, for many years now, and he is such a wealth of knowledge in terms of strength and performance enhancement. Absolutely. But when you uh, – perform kettlebell training in a way that transfers to more endurance sports. When you exhale, if you exhale just a little bit more than the usual tidal, high and low tide, and clear out that dead space of air just a little bit more, uh, in many endurance athletes, this creates a, a very significant enhancement of uh, performance over an endurance run. It's, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there because I can go on. Oh, I, well, keep going. I'll, I'll, let you, <laughs> I'll let you comment because I've got a, a few more things to talk about breathing. If, if you'd like, I mean, my, my brain is just exploding. <laughs> <as you're asking laughs> me these questions. Hey, so I won't, I won't, 
take long. I mean, I, I think it's really great that you brought up endurance sports. And I used to work with a lot of runners. And it was interesting because some of these races that we used to put on were put on TV. And we had a TV show on NBC. And it was funny because I started to push, especially the female, well, obviously the female um, right, runners away from things like sports bras because I suspected they were trying to stay so tense while they were running that it was actually decreasing their performance and increasing their fatigue across the race because they were not, like you said, a, a strong uh, power lifter needs to be tense, but a runner needs to kind of have some uh, some relaxation in the system. And so that was something I kind of noticed and began to kind of push athletes towards different, different clothing choices just to hopefully improve their ability to breathe. But take the ball back and and keep enlightening us. This is amazing. Well, I, I could comment about your comment there. <laughs> uh, consider that when a muscle contracts, it does two things. It creates force. Everyone knows that. But what's not appreciated in performance sport is that when that muscle contracts, it also creates stiffness. So tighten your bicep as hard as you can. Your arm cannot move. Because of the stiffness. So, pulsing uh, athletes who are moving at high velocities can't use a lot of strength because the force and the stiffness that comes along with it stops motion. So, when you measure the neurology of the great performance athletes, you'll notice it's always a pulsing strength. So, your running athletes, uh, yes, they are elastic. Uh, athletes storing and recovering elastic energy with each stride, uh, potentiating that with skillful breathing. But the very best ones have this wonderful ability to pulse on heel strike and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but the rest of the time, they are in such relaxation to stop the friction in the muscle uh, that comes with with stiffness. So the the people would ask me, you know, I, I I've worked with top Olympians of virtually every single sport with back pain, <laughs> and all of the professional sports. I've I've measured gold medalists in many Olympic sports. And what is the commonality? What makes a great athlete great? Well, one thing I can tell you is it's their ability to activate a muscle very, very quickly, and their ability to deactivate a muscle very quickly into relaxation to create even more speed. So the, the, the fastest sprinters in the world are the best pulse relaxers. So they pulse and explode and then flow with such ease of motion in a, in a perfectly relaxed muscle. Um, distance runners are just tuned elastic kangaroos. So beautifully fusing the breath and this interplay between force and stiffness. But, you, you know, we did experiments over the years, and this is what was coming to mind on people who were smokers with COPD. And what happens there is COPD uh, is caused by a loss of elasticity in the lungs. So the uh, scarring and insult of smoking uh, takes all the elasticity out of the lungs. So now how do they breathe? How do they lift? How do they stabilize? They've got nothing left but their back muscles. So they have to use their back muscles to lift up their rib cage 
to draw air into their lungs because the elasticity is gone now. And now we start to really document severe decrements in performance, severe decrements in uh, elasticity, and massive back pain. So it really gives an insight into uh, unskilled movement and performance and people without COPD just <laughs> performing these different activities. But the th when I said my mind was exploding, I, I can probably let the cat out of the bag here now a little bit. Um, you'll recall, I know you're a Red Sox fan, but a few years ago, the St. Louis Cardinals won the uh, World Series. With that year, and the year previous, I worked with their director of human performance, uh, Dr. Clayton Skaggs and his team. And we measured a fitness profile of every single Cardinals player on the big league team and then the three double uh, A AA and triple A teams that are the, the farm teams. So we had the top baseball players, pitchers excluded. And uh, I guess we had 92 players, something like that. And we followed them for the two years simply based on their ability to move well, uh, some performance markers. Could we predict over those two years who would sustain an injury and more particularly who would sustain a back injury? We had four back injuries over those next uh, two years. Do you know? And it, I'm, I am still amazed at this. We were able to predict with 100% accuracy the four who ended up with a back injury based on their fitness and movement profiles two years previous. Even more impressive, there were 88 who didn't get a back injury. And we were able to predict the 88 who didn't as well. So you're probably wondering, what were the biomarkers that predicted resilience playing baseball. Uh, am I right? Or, are, or, lack, or lack thereof. Yes, very interesting. Or, or lack thereof, <laughs> yes. So this is the only study that I know of. And there were three parameters that came out of the data mining algorithm. The first one <clears throat> was core control. So this shouldn't surprise you. We've already had the discussion about proximal stiffness and control really sets up the dynamics of the body linkage. It's non-negotiable. The second thing was hip mechanics. I, we've talked about pulsing, hip mobility, and that kind of thing. So the hips are ball and socket joints. The spine is not a ball and socket joint. Is it, it, The discs are adaptable fabrics. They follow completely different rules. But core control, optimal hip mechanics, and the third thing you're going to love, it was breathing mechanics. Now, I never predicted in a million years that breathing mechanics would come out in, in such a strong way, but that was the uh, third element. Anyway, I've spoken way too much now, and you will probably want to uh, comment or move no, hey. on to something yeah. else. <laughs> never, <laughs> never feel like you have to pass the ball back. You just keep this thing. This is absolutely terrific. I'm taking notes and enjoying this. So, so what were these, and, and I noticed you mentioned that you didn't include the pitchers. That's interesting. Uh, why, why did you choose to not include the pitchers? 
Because a pitcher is such a more unidimensional athlete in terms of they, uh, for example, there is a belief that the better athletes are symmetric athletes and that kind of thing. Well, they may be if you're a runner or a cyclist or, or whatever, but the best pitchers are highly asymmetric. And if you try and make them symmetric, you will ruin their athleticism. Do, do you follow what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 so they're a very special beast. And when I use the word unidimensional, they are good at pitching. Chances are they're not very good at, at uh, batting and, and running bases and that kind of thing. Whereas a non-pitcher would have a much larger spectrum of athletic demand and capabilities. Yeah, it makes... But they won't be throwing a fastball at 110 miles an hour either. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's so funny when we look at the highest level athletes and, you know, every time guys like LeBron James post on Instagram, they'll post a lot with them in the gym or doing back squats or, you know, and they're it's funny because the best in the world, it, it's very often that, you know, their form is just like, you know, there's a lot to be said or a lot to be picked at. And people always send it to me like, oh my gosh, he needs you. He needs you to like fix him. And I'm like, I wouldn't want to touch LeBron. Like if he wants to, if LeBron wants to squat like that, there's something, <laughs> you know, he's at the back end of his career. If he's made it this far, I'm not sure I want to be the one to try to fix his squat. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's a, a very wise thing that you just said. <sighs> well, thank you. Um, the, so in the breathing mechanics, is there anything specific and, you know, any more specifics around, uh, the specific things you saw in the athletes, those four that got injured in particular, uh, whether it's breathing or pulsing or hips or, or hip mechanics or mobility, I imagine you looked at as it relates to regular people, maybe some of the symptoms might be kind of relevant. So can you dive in to any specifics around what you saw as they might be a red flag for some of our listeners? Well, I'm not going to talk about elite baseball anymore, if that's the context of your question, because they are not elite baseball players. You're talking about my experience with average people that, that might be more relevant to them. Right. But well, if you, I'm a, just as an example, if you I mean, I, I can tell you who, who, who will uh, have an increased risk of back injury through their life. All right. Let's go with it. Okay. Uh, those who uh, don't move well, and what I mean by that is they create stress concentrations in their body. So if you're talking about a, a deadlift or a squat in, in the previous example, the more the load, the more the stress the more the stress, the greater the risk of that person crossing the biological tipping point of the area in their body where the stress is. Now, you migrate stress and load in the body through posture change and movement. So if I'm sitting upright in my chair now, uh, using muscle and having a nice curve in my low back, I am using muscle to stay in that particular posture. Now, if I was to slouch and I don't have any back pain history, I have no orthopedic issues. If I slouch, I've just migrated the tissues, the tissue load away from active muscle, and I've put them on the disc and ligaments. If I don't have a back history, then there's no problem in, in slouching. But if I stay in that position too long, the discs will accumulate creep 
and stretching, which will cause discomfort over time. Uh, so I will alleviate that by going back to sitting upright. So do you see, we're talking about hacks again, frequent posture change for uh, static activities is is uh, a very wise strategy. Uh, but when you're under load, uh, you move well. So when you squat, try and be hip dominant. Use the hips rather than the back, for example. Um, when I so how, how do we measure this when, when a, a, a patient comes here? Um, we measure what are the demands of their life. So if they are a power lifter, then that's a fairly unidimensional athleticism. They've got to become very stiff. We don't want loose hamstrings or anything like that. We want very stiff bodies that can tolerate that kind of load. Now, they're not very good at throwing a football. They would have difficulty cutting their toenails and all of these things. So it's is, is that a functional place where a person wants to be? They have to make that decision. Then let's go to the polar opposite end of the world where someone says, well, I, I want to do yoga. Fabulous. Adapt your body to be a yoga master, but you will pay the price of not being able to bear heavy load. And, and the spine in particular will adapt to that. So as I mentioned earlier, the discs are adaptable fabrics. And what I mean by that is the disc is made up of many collagen fibers that are stuck together, held together with a ground substance. Now, movement and load causes a loosening of those fibers to allow more movement. The price you pay, though, is when you were if you were to deadlift, for example, that creates great compression down through the spine and squeezes the nuclear gel inside the collagen fibers and inside the concentric rings. If those rings have been loosened with too much mobility, the collagen, the gel will work its way through the delaminations in the collagen and create a disc bulge. That also creates joint laxity and the micro movements that I was talking about earlier, which they're okay if you're a gymnast. But if you have a micro movement in your spine when you're squatting, uh, a, <laughs> uh, that will create a stress concentration and, and a very high risk of injury. And B, it will shut down your neural drive. So if it, on YouTube uh, last year, 2019, it, the, the, if you look at World's Strongest Man, it was in Mogadishu, Africa. They had a task there where the athletes had to squat 750 pounds on this big rack for reps. And whoever squatted the most reps one well it was interesting watch every athlete compete that and and look at the repetition before the final one so say an athlete maxed out at 15 reps go to 14 and you will see the micro movement either the hips slide out one way there's a little waver in the torso in other words that micro movement the brain just shuts it down after that. And you know, every time the next rep, they will fail. The brain will not supply the neural drive. So anyway, there, there's another little bit of a, 
uh, a tangent, I suppose, that we could go on for 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 hours and hours. But, no, so. it's great, and and it's one of the big things I took away from your book because I think even myself, you know, uh, if somebody were to just send me a message from a world away and say, you know, I've got back pain, you know, I might say, hey, like try yoga. You know, this is something that you know get a little bit more limber. You've been sitting too much. You know, it's kind of this like low hanging recommendation, and it was really. Really kind of, kind of, you know, someone turned the lights on when I was reading your book and it, you just talked about, you know, how this obsession with stretching hamstrings and even this recommendation to go try yoga or Pilates can actually definitely push people at times. And again, like you said, at the start of the show, you know, maybe 20% of people hit the nail on the head and they got lucky and the other four, you know, made themselves a little bit worse. So I, I think that the yoga Pilates and, and obviously dovetailing with the the nature of the breath, as you described from the chair and trying to get up, I think a lot of those practices, uh, especially I think Pilates tells you to really draw in and it's all core stuff. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you've seen in patients uh, as it relates to them going and just trying yoga and Pilates if they're back pain, especially if it's episodic? Well, without an assessment, they are just doing a experiment on their own body, which is fine. What I would prefer is they have a decent assessment to know what the mechanism of their pain is, and then they will know if yoga is for them or Pilates is for them. But now I have another layer of concerns. What is yoga and what is Pilates? You just described a style of Pilates where they're instructed to draw the belly in as a bracing, stabilizing strategy. Well, a lot of Pilates schools have now changed, uh, hopefully influenced uh, by our work, and they do not issue that uh, drawing in maneuver anymore. Oh, that's great. But uh, when you... Uh, Look at, uh, I mean, you know, where where does science come from and where does evidence come from? It comes from all kinds of places. There is a hip surgeon, for example, uh, in uh, London, England. Uh, London, England is a very cosmopolitan uh, place now in, in the world. And uh, I forget how many thousands of hip replacements this uh, surgeon has done, but it's many, many thousands. Whose hips are he, are, is he replacing? Uh, they're mostly Caucasian British women who've done quite a number of years of yoga. Now, let's there's, there's plenty of Indian women who practice yoga in London as well. He says he's never replaced one. So, when you look around the world at hip architecture, for example, um, uh, again, I don't know how we're getting onto these topics, but let's follow orthopedic disease for a moment. When you, uh, what, what country, and, and let's, let's keep this to Caucasians to begin this, this discussion, uh, what country in Europe has the highest rate of hip dysplasia? Do you know? That, that's a shallow hip socket, and the ball of the hip tends to dislocate out of the socket. It's common among, uh, more common among children. 
It, it happens to be Poland. Hmm. And the reason is on national average. Now, I'm not saying every Polish person has a shallow hip socket, but on national average, they have a very genetically shallow hip socket. It's the highest rate uh, in Europe of hip dysplasia. Now, where do the deep squatting Olympic lifters come from? Poland, Poland yeah. Bulgaria, <laughs> uh, Western Russia, which is Ukraine, etc. And then when you measure the power production out of that style of hip in the deep squat, the power out of the hole at the bottom of the squat is ungodly. That's where the power is. Now I'm going to ask the opposite question in terms of orthopedic disease. The opposite of hip dysplasia is FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, and it comes from having a very deep hip socket. So when you squat deeply, the anterior part of the femur collides with the front margin or roof of the front of the hip socket. The highest rate of FAI in Europe is in Western Europe and particularly among the Celtic nations. So Normandy, France is a very dense Celtic population, and so is Ireland and Scotland. Highest rate of FAI. But now let's ask, how many Olympic lifters come from Scotland and Ireland? And you'll find the answer is pretty close to zero. Because when you measure the squat strength in that architecture, you'll find that the uh, squat power is in the top half of the squat. So if you're setting up two lifters, one with shallow hip sockets, you'll notice that they don't fail at the bottom of the lift. They fail at lockout, typically. Whereas the deep hip socket really struggles to get the bar moving. But once the bar crosses the knees, they hit second gear and they don't fail at lockout. So it's so interesting then when you look at the uh, cultural martial arts around the world, the cultural dances and whatnot, they will reveal to you the body uh, type, the natural athleticism. So, uh, you know, just think of the Ukrainian dance where they're down in the pistol squat position. Mm. One, did you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Try and do that in a Celtic nation. It's not going to happen. Their strength, if you look at their games, is a standing strength. When you look at the uh, Celtic games of caber toss, uh, weight throw, etc., uh, the hammer throw, these are all standing strengths because it so takes advantage of their architecture. Or you know, we can go right back to the whole breathing <laughs> and performance question again. And uh, if you're a strong first man, you will know uh, Okinawan strength, getting into the horse stance mm -hmm. and uh, creating, putting on the iron shirt of Okinawan karate. Uh, boy, <laughs> Okinawans have the longest bodies and shortest leg length ratios, I think, in the world. But now when you look at Okinawan martial arts with the hip tosses and they get the hips in deep under an opponent and they throw their opponents, it, it is so uh, optimized to that body architecture. So, you know, if you want to talk about biohacks, we all can't be everything. We all have certain advantages and disadvantages and therefore stress concentrations and therefore uh, propensities for different types of uh, back disorders and uh, 
resiliences and, and all the rest of it. Oh, we could talk about this for hours. Yeah, well, <laughs> it makes total sense. And it, it gets back to the, you know, the secret to performance and health and it's choose your parents well. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, there's so much wisdom in what you just said. Uh, but isn't it interesting when I get to spend time with some of the top performers in the world and there's that uh, much more difficult thing to measure, which is the mental toughness and uh, drive and all the rest of it. Right. Well, before we move on from this topic, my son is half Icelandic. So do you have any information or hacks around the Icelandic population? <laughs> I, I, not really. I've spent time in Iceland. And as you know, it, it, there's this land of the giants that there is a subpopulation where uh, the, the the strength of of some of these people is just so uh, ungodly yeah but it, it, it's even mythical in Iceland right you know when you talk to the average Icelandic person they, they will tell you about the the giants that yeah, I mean, my right son's two months old, and he's almost eight kilos, and he's just wow. solid. <laughs> so I'm like, he didn't yeah. get that from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So getting back into this, I would love to dive into um, some modern fitness approaches, and um, you know, some 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 kind of risks or issues, maybe even exercise. One of the things that really stuck out to me in your book is is the list of things to stop doing when you have back pain. And and the list was interesting. You know, it was like the the toe touch and the the double knee hug and even even the knee the single knee hug, the sort of pigeon pose. Um, I would love to dive into some of the scariest things that you think are going on or that exist in the sort of general fitness population, the boot camps, uh, the types of exercise selection that are happening for the sake of the sweaty and sore scale that, you know, might be doing a number on folks back. And then, and then if we could dive into, um, maybe what's happening in some of these exercises, the Superman was the other one. It's such a common exercise, but, um, what have you seen in those exercises as to why they should just be avoided once you have a little bit of back pain? Okay. You, you truly ask mammoth questions. <laughs> okay, my, my, my brain first started to consider boot camps and Let's then stick we about that. Out. I'll save the, uh, okay, can I start yeah, with boot camps? Start with because, boot camps. Okay. May, may I write a little essay yeah, for you now? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, let's start down the, the, this principle that stress concentrations are what cause the initial pain mechanism in, in most situations. So a stress concentration is a magnitude of force for a specific duration. It might be a long or a short. If it's a big force for a short duration, that will cause uh, pain and micro damage, or if it's a smaller force for a longer duration, that too will cause uh, micro damage. Repetition will cause uh, micro damage as well. But now the big question, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? The, qu the answer is it could be either because now we're talking about adaptation. So the body adapts to micro damage. So when I measure in 
uh, top power lifters, they are creating dense bone in their spines. They do it by creating very, very small micro fractures. So if you've ever worked with world-class power lifters, you will think they're undertrained as anyone from an endurance background would think a power lifter is undertrained because they might do a heavy squat or a heavy deadlift session once per week. But what they're doing is that stimulus actually causes at the bone cell osteon level, a microfracture, and it takes five days, six days to scaffold in new calcium and magnesium uh, molecules on that fracture to callus it over. So, uh, in other words, that stress concentration created micro damage, but it had an appropriate uh, period of rest to create anabolic adaptation. You laid down more bone. But if you were a bodybuilder and you trained three days a week, do you see that that microfracture caused on Monday would be compounded with a load on Wednesday, compounded with a load on Friday, so that now those microfractures turn into macro stress fractures and delaminations of the collagen and, and everything else. So this notion of a stress concentration uh, has to have with it a discussion of rest and adaptation. So you have to do it, but it's the rest and adapt uh, the, the 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 appropriate rest and f nutritional fuel and all the rest of it to make sure that you have an anabolic building up of the tissue rather than a cumulative tearing down. So there's the start of it. Now the next part of the essay has to look at how the body is made form and function. So the uh, hip joints, the shoulder joints, those are made to produce power, big force through big ranges of motion. That's why they're a ball and socket. The spine is not. I've already talked about the discs are adaptable fabric. So if you want to be a power lifter and a strength athlete and all the rest of it, you will be better by not doing a lot of spine mobility. You, you will be able to tolerate more load if you have stiffer ground substance between the collagen fibers. The next issue is training is really a dance. It's a dance between demand and capacity. Your job as a trainer is to understand what the demands are on this person that you're training for. So if they're a firefighter, you know what their demands are. If, there's a, if they're a mixed martial artist, you've got to know what the demands are. If they're a stay-at-home mom picking a four-month-old up out of the crib, you've got to know what those demands are. As a trainer, your job is to create a capacity in that person to meet those demands. But now everything is a trade-off. So I've talked about the load-bearing and the mobility trade-off. You cannot train endurance and strength, as you know. They're two competing metabolic processes. If you, the stronger you become, the less endurable you become. You can't fight that and, and vice versa. But the what, what separates out the world-class trainers are those who can 
find the balance. What is the optimal balance between mobility and load bearing or endurance and strength or whatever? So there's just a little bit of an introduction to the science of training. And uh, it is a very high science. And I will also say, and and this is a little bit of a, a, it's a very strong political statement, actually. Look at the spectrum available to a person in healthcare, and who do they seek for lifelong health advice? Every single system in the body depends on good movement for optimal health. Now, who owns good movement? It's not the family doc. You go there with diabetes, they'll give you a pill. You go there with back pain, they'll give you an analgesic. In both of those cases, the most effective intervention was probably exercise, but that's not what you're going to get. Who owns exercise and the uh, uh, optimal stimulation for good health, it's the trainer. Mm -hmm. So when I say it's a very high science, it's a very high responsibility, it is. When you think about it, the trainer has the potential to have the largest lifelong impact on that person's health. So what they do, it's bloody important and they better get it right. So training it's very difficult to find a really good trainer who knows all of these trade-offs, uh, et cetera. But now you got me onto boot camp. <laughs> We've already made the case that there is a certain capacity that everyone has. You're training to meet demands. The, the whole key of mechanostimulation is to stay under the biological tipping point of painful stress concentrations, but push it enough so you create an anabolic adaptation. Boot camps violate all of this. They, 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 they throw all the science to the wind and uh, they, they, they just uh, violate the biological adaptation principles. The path is not sustainable to higher performance. It shortens people's careers. And it, it, so from a biological point, point of view, a scientific point of view, uh, does boot camp make sense? I don't believe so. That's the end of the essay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. So if if you if you go on science, it doesn't make sense. If you just want to go out and have a blowout and have fun and get sore and go heal for a month, or hopefully it's not a few years, go have fun at boot camp. (laughs) Right, and I I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think that personal trainers have just such an important role in health. And I think the biggest enemy, I think so many of them have their head on tight and, you know, they want to do good for their clients and even the ones that attend, you know, the perform better workshops or what have you, um, their clients still walk in the door and they want a beating, you know? And I think this is when I look at different forums and things, and sometimes I contribute, um, that's a big question is like, what do you do when, you know, you walk, the client walks in the door and their association is that exercise has to be brutal and they won't be satisfied with anything less than a hundred burpees. And, you know, I think there's a, a lot of trainers that struggle with that on a daily basis, kind of giving people what they need disguised as what they want. Joe, over half of the people who come here to BackFit Pro with back pain, serious back pain, have been caused or created 
by trainers. Mm. Now, that is not an indictment of trainers, not at all. But what it is a commentary on is there are a lot of trainers who aren't getting it right. And there's a yeah. lot who are. So we, we, we've got to keep this uh, element of uh, continual education. And it isn't about making a client sore. Um, now, I don't get those kind of clients. I already get the believers. They, they, mm. they're, they're debilitated by the time they get here. Now, mind you, so a lot of them are world-class performers, but uh, they get it. They realize that the margin for error now is razor thin, and pain makes it razor thin. The higher the performance, the closer you are to world record, the margin of error and the margin of safety goes razor thin. And for those in pain, it goes razor thin as well. So it requires a whole level of, of higher um, expertise in the trainer to, to deal with those people. Yeah. That, that's why we have our certification, yeah. by the way. But um, anyway, it's, uh, it's a supremely important responsibility. And if someone came to me saying, uh, oh, I, I just want to get sore, <laughs> I would say, great, enjoy your pain and enjoy the shortness of your athletic career through your life. Right. But what is your objective? Can I ask you, and they'll say, oh, I want to set another personal best. I said, really? Okay, I get that. But now let me say, how about this? You're a new parent. How would you like to be the most rocking 85-year-old grandfather on this planet? How would you like to go out and shoot a few hoops, take your grandchildren kayaking, you know, all of these? And then they stop and think, and that's a perspective that they haven't thought about before. So maybe sometimes it's just a, a, a little conversation. Now, is that cognitive behavioral therapy or is it good training? <laughs> it's, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. And with Dan John's permission, I took his uh, for my own intake form with new clients. It's, you know, what is your goal to, I think it's two days from now, two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, two decades from now. And you got to, you know, fill this all in. It gets people kind of thinking like, oh man, yeah, I really want to lift heavy now, but I do want to be that, you know, that that dad that can coach baseball and, and throw as many pitches as I want. And I want to be able to pick my kid up, et cetera. Stu, one one thing I've noticed with people with back yeah, pain. Yeah, I will say not to interrupt, oh, Joe, no, but yeah, Dan, Dan Dan's fabulous. So uh, I've known Dan a lot of years. He's a he's a wise man and a great trainer. He is he has had just probably the biggest influence on me. Um, I I've followed him for a long time. Of course, I took my first RKC with him. I I now have taught with him. Um, so yeah, he is just such a brilliant guy. Such a just being of light. I just really enjoy spending time with him. Um, one thing, Stu, that I've noticed with low back patients, at least the ones I've seen, or, or maybe I train them and I used to collab a lot with, with physical therapists and these things, but they all seem to be uh, what a, a former podcast guest, Michael Rotala called high threshold people, right? Like, So one of the biggest 
things that I try to teach people with back pain is is often how to kind of relax. It's I, There's a personality type, in other words, from my experience that not 100% of the time, but a lot of the time, the people with back pain, you know, they're also the, the busy ones that don't have time to, you know, do their morning meditation or whatever it might be. They're also, you know, I feel like that tension just runs through them. And, and it's why I focus so much on breathing because I'm actually trying to get some, some parasympathetic activity in there and try to calm them down because I suspect that if we can calm the system, you know, their back pain might kind of reduce a little bit. Have you seen this at all? Of course, there's a lot of wisdom in what you say. But when someone says back pained people are high, high threshold, of course, there are some. But there are also there are the polar opposites, the absolute sloths who, you know, you wonder how they even have enough energy to get up and sit on the toilet. It, you know, seriously, they are that <laughs> low threshold that there's no constitution with them at all. And and by the way, when they first come here, I welcome them to Gravenhurst and I shake their hand and I learn right at that instant what their threshold is. Mm. If they give me a wet fish handshake uh, or a one that they're crushing my hand, that is quite telling, by the way. But there's all kinds of signs that you can see. Um, and, and the trick is to read a person. So uh, when a person comes in and they say they're young and, and all I'm doing is giving you uh, patterns. So we're, we're, we're going to do some pattern recognition, which will take you a long way uh, in many cases. Let's take a young person who comes in and you find that when you ask them to arch backwards, that causes their familiar back pain. It's in one spot. They can put their finger on it and uh, there's no radiation down the legs, etc. So there's the beginning of a pattern. Then step back and look at them and you will see generally they're a peacock with their chest. Chest is, is risen high. Their gluteal muscles are clenched. Look at their knees. Their knees typically will be hard driven, locked back into hard extension. So I might say to them, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of uh, rumbling uh, in that spot in your back right now, isn't there? And they say, yeah, yeah, it's there. I can feel it. Jazz knees, soften your knees, loosen up and dance. Let your glutes go. Now, I want you to breathe deeply, let it all go, and let's hover your ears over your shoulders, over your hips, and over those jazz knees. Now I want you to stand with absolutely zero muscle activity. How's your back pain? It's gone. So there, there might be just an example mm. of, uh, of, of, of a pattern and just starting to understand. So there's a person who is just locking themselves, crushing them into the back pain. So what do the knees do? When the knees get driven hard back in extension, that extends the hips, which causes more lordosis, more extension in their low back, right into their back pain. And they never realized it. But if they just let go of their glutes and their knees, hover, relax, breathe, all of a sudden, that tension, which was holding them in a subtle posture that was feeding their pain. So do, do you see how mm -hmm. th there's a pattern? Yeah. 
but and then the next person comes in and I'll say, uh, do you mind picking up your backpack? Let's go downstairs. And they just are a wet noodle and they <laughs> bend over and uh, it's full range of spine motion. And I take them downstairs to the clinic. And as soon as I start moving their spine, it's causing their pain. So there's an example of a low threshold pattern. Right. Now I have to start to say, I want you to stand good. Now, Let's do a basketball drop step or a drop step in tennis. Just stand there and step back to the right. Oh, that, 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 as soon as I started to move, it caused my pain. I'll say, good. I push my fingers into their lateral obliques and I'll say, push my fingers out. Now, shift your weight onto your left leg, drop step with the right. Oh, my pain is gone. Good. You just established proximal stiffness eliminated the micro movement that was taking place at the joint and triggering your pain. Now you can create the distal athleticism of hip external rotation and the drop step. Bingo. We're there. So, you know, I'm, I might have a tour tennis player where we will start there because pain has so corrupted their movement patterns that they have forgotten how to appropriately brace and that that's the whole key appropriately uh stiffen to allow that distal mobility and speed and athleticism and all the rest of it so do you see it can go many ways right no makes it makes total sense and i think obviously you know certain types of people might search me out and certain types of people might search someone else out. So even if, even if, you know, I, it appears to be like, how come everyone with back pain is this type of person? It's probably just my marketing. <laughs> I'm just getting, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of personality. Well, that's, that's, that's so true. When I was at the university, you know, 20 some odd years ago, we started the experimental, uh, back pain clinic and we would get the full spectrum of the community and back pain coming in. So there was the compensation cases, you know, people who just hated their job. They just didn't want to go back to their job. Mm -hmm. So that is a very special kind of uh, patient. And then, you know, the next person in is a super performer and a businessman. The next person comes in as an athlete and, and et cetera. Um, but now uh, when people come to BackFit Pro, they've already been to a dozen different clinicians. We don't see people from the local community. They all fly in from somewhere in the world. In other words, they are highly motivated to do something about their back pain. So do you see how that in of itself absolutely uh, is a selection bias? But uh, boy, on one hand, we get some really, really difficult uh, challenging back pain patients. Yeah. But on the other hand, we also know that they're going to commit to do what we do. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about back mechanic and, you know, I'm always talking on this show about like how I try to keep my mom safe. Like this is the vitamin C I give my mom. This is the, and one of the things that I like, she's not in back pain. She does yoga all the time. And not that that there's any correlation there, but uh, she's in pretty good shape. But one of the things that I really loved is just uh, partially the distillation of, you know, if there was to be an approach, of course, you help people in the book kind of figure out what their triggers are. And, you know, the whole book is just awesome. Uh, but you've got th uh, the big three exercises that, that 
people should do. And what I love about it is I just push those right to mom and say, Hey mom, like this is our, you know, take the multivitamin and then these are the exercises. So can you tell us a little bit about the big three from back mechanic and, and why you chose the exercises? Yeah. Um, since your mom practices yogi, the big three will not be that unfamiliar to her. They are uh, in various forms in yoga and Pilates and, and gymnastics and, and everything else. But uh, to go back to the scientific principle, our body is a linkage that requires proximal stability for all movement. Even before you take a step uh, to open a door, you have to stiffen the core to some degree. And uh, uh, so the next question is, how do you train this core stiffness, uh, for lack of a better word, to enhance pain reduction and performance. We spent years and years assessing different uh, exercises for the most efficient way to create this athletic core stability. So the requirements were, does it create muscle activation that is at a training level? Does it spare the spine? That was key because people had a low capacity. They had back pain. And um, well, let, let's just start with that science. The exercises that kept bubbling up to the top were the modified curl up for the front of the core, the, 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 the rectus abdominis and the obliques. For the lateral core, which is quadratus lumborum, psoas, the obliques, latissimus dorsi, very important, turned out to be the side plank. And then the bird dog for the back uh, extensor muscles. Now, uh, so much more happened after that. People would do them and they'll say, you know, we feel better uh, for an hour or so after doing them. Our back pain is either gone or it's much less. Then we'll say, good. Those are the subcategory of people who have joint micro movements or laxity at their joints because they've had a disc bulge or an end plate fracture or something like that. They, we then prescribe them do them twice a day. Do half of the sets and reps mid-morning, half of them mid-afternoon. So there was another little biohack that we learned to propel people out of pain faster. Then the performance people, for example, in the NFL, there are several NFL football teams that start every weight room session and on-field practice session with the big three. Why? It enhances performance. It cleans up the hip hinge for uh, lifts, but when you're running and cutting, more core stiffness actually increases the, the, the quickness of the foot plant change direction and cut. Uh, proximal stiffness. Now, how does that work? There is a neural stiffness in the in the motor control system. So when you do the big three, it enhances proximal stiffness, but it stays with you. And we measured this uh, both from right after the session, but also training. We trained Muay Thai fighters for six weeks and showed how they increased their general core stiffness and stability uh, throughout the training session. So there's, there's layers upon layers of science that, that went into that. But uh, in a nutshell, when you measure stability, 
And uh, very few people have done that. Only three or four universities in the world have actually measured spine stability. So we're able to measure how effective the various candidate exercises are. That's how we kept coming back to the big three is the most efficient way to do it. That's that's terrific. And and again, anybody listening that knows anybody with back pain should definitely just pick up Back Mechanic. Again, it, no better book will ever be written because you touch on, I absolutely love the idea of virtual surgery and, and really kind of getting through to people both on the physical side, the emotional side, the the real helping them with the realization that they might know more about their pain than their doc. I just think the book is, is wildly empowering and, and amazing and just an amazing piece of writing for folks. Um, I have one question, Stu, and then, and then we'll let you go. I appreciate the time today and that's kettlebell training. I know you're close with Pavel. If you could only do one or two kettlebell exercises for the rest of your life, what two would they be? That's an unfair question <laughs> because you don't know anything about me and more, nor does the audience. So what is relevant for me could be totally irrelevant for them. Okay. So, do, 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 do you see why th that's why I, I'm not going to rise to the bait of that question? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm middle sixties. Uh, my, answer to that. If I was in my 30s, I would have done totally different kettlebell training than I do today. Can I rephrase? So, well, can I just take off on that for just yeah, a second? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So, we measured world-class strong men. I think we're the only people who've ever measured them. Um, we measured the fellow who won the super yoke competition, which is you get under a bar, which has weights hanging from it, ungodly weights and you get under the bar you 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 carry it on a high bar position across your shoulders and you see how far you can walk with it whoever walks the farthest uh wins the super yoke if you talk to my colleagues who are the gate specialists scientists who study how we gate and they fit and the, how, how we walk and and they they try and help people with gait pathology they will tell you that when you take a step, so you plant your left leg and you swing the right leg, that the left leg requires hip abduction to hold the pelvis level and swing the right leg. You're familiar with this principle? Yes. Okay, so this is frontal plane athleticism. In other words, side-to-side -side athleticism. Now, let's go to the children's hospital down the road and go to the neurological ward. And... We might find a seven-year-old girl who has a paralyzed quadratus lumborum. That's the muscle that runs either side of the spine up and down. And what you'll notice with her is that if her right quadratus lumborum is paralyzed, she can stand on her right leg and swing the left Perfect. No change in mechanics. But when she stands on her left leg and swings the right, her right pelvis falls, she collapses and falls over. In other words, the quadratus lumborum, <coughs> excuse me, is non-negotiable for walking. It's a frontal plane core stabilizer that makes walking possible. I'd say that's a pretty important muscle, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Okay, there's the first part of the essay. The second part, we now go back to the strong man. 
I measured the strong man's hip abduction strength to be 500 newton meters. If you can get your head around that, because the average guy on the street, maximum back extension is probably 350, 400 newton meters. So this guy has that much more strength than that in hip abduction. (laughs) I laid him on on a strength table on his side. I laid on his lower leg, full body, and he still popped me up into the air. Holy smokes. You know, ungodly strength. Now, when I measured him carrying a world-class super yoke, I just said he had 500 newton meters of hip abduction, which my gait colleagues tell me is essential for walking. But that's the end of their analysis. They've never put a wire in the quadratus lumborum of that paralyzed girl. I have. Uh, not, not in that particular girl, but in, in our experiments, we were the first to ever put uh, fine wire electrodes into the quadratus lumborum. Anyway, when we measured him doing world-class super yoke competition, he needed 750 newton meters of strength to plant the left leg and swing the right. But he only had 500 in the hip. And yet the, sp- the great hip experts say, oh, well, that strength comes from the hip. And I, I'm the, guy, the spine guy who measures this and says, wait a second, you've only accounted for two thirds of his strength. That's not possible for him to win the super yoke. How did he do it? And then, of course, we measure it's on the opposite side. The QL, the obliques, etc., are what hold the pelvis up on the swing leg side to create a level platform to allow the spine to be vertical and accomplish the the super yoke task. So there's a little bit of an essay, you need frontal plane strength. There are lots of people who will tell you core strength makes you stronger and everything else you do. And then you say, oh yeah, explain that to me. And they can't. But now I'm explaining to you how core strength and core stiffness radiates out through the linkage. And we have wonderful conversations, Pavel and I, about this. This is why it's non-negotiable. It is the hub of all strength. It's what allows hip power to unleash and all the rest of it. Now, with that essay, I can answer your question about kettlebells. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I have to set these up. Perfect. But otherwise, it's an opinion And that's not why I'm here. It's to give the science and a logic for trainers to make the very best decisions. What exercise is the best to target quadratus lumborum? It's walking. Just get a back-pained person to walk. Short, little, tolerable intervals, never creating pain. If they can walk for five minutes without pain, they walk four. If they walk an hour before pain starts, they only walk 45 minutes. They never go to pain. But they repeat that several times throughout the day. Now it's time to progress. They've built a little bit of capacity. Let's do a suitcase carry with a kettlebell fairly modest 12 16 kilo by the way all my kettlebells are the real russian kettlebells gifts of pavel i'm very i i garner those with with great uh, appreciation and respect Amazing. and you carry that in a suitcase style what a fabulous quadratus lumborum conditioner now let's up 
uh, drive that exercise a little bit more. Let's go into a kettlebell racked position. The kettlebell is a little bit higher now. The uh, shoulders in a little bit of internal rotation to settle down the shoulder joint. Let's just carry that for a while. Now we're going to go bottoms up, kettlebell, elbow under the fist, under the kettlebell. Now walk. You are super driving frontal plane strength and most importantly, core control. Do you remember what I said? Prevented injury in the St. Louis uh, Cardinals. Core control, hip. Uh, it, it all comes it, home to roost. Yeah. It's a big circle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Breathe behind the shield. Uh, purse your lips. Make a small hole. Bottoms up kettlebell. So there is an exercise that uh, I will do in the winter. I wouldn't do it in the summer. And... Uh, I love kettlebell swings. When I was a younger man, I had some sheer instability in my lumbar spine and I could swing a kettlebell for about two weeks and then my back would start to tweak. So uh, I uh, had to really limit my kettlebell swings. Now I'm in my middle 60s. Everything has stiffened and stabilized. I can swing again. I'm having a blast. So do you see why when you ask me what I would do as, as, as if it's a model for everybody else, uh, there's a logic flaw there. Right, right. No, I, was, I was trying to set you up because I thought you might, having talked to, last time I saw Dan <laughs> John, we talked a lot about what I call death by carries. And I don't know if he came up with that or you did or I did. And so I was wondering if you would it would go there. So I was trying to prop you up. But I'm curious, why don't you do carries in the summertime? Did I hear you right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Because I, I do a lot of physical labor. And uh, in the summertime, I carry I, I'm up and down hills carrying building supplies and just just stuff boat gas, uh, you know, but in the winter, one of my passions is snowmobiling. And uh, I have to train to do it. Otherwise, I get hurt. And uh, that's all part of my uh, winter training, but I do not need to do it in the summer. Got it. Got it. That's, Makes that. That's the beauty of living in Canada. We have a fabulous winter and we have a fabulous summer, but the demands on me really change between yeah. the seasons. Makes sense. Makes sense. And and this morning, I, I think I told you before we started, uh, I've been going on a bike ride every day or two with my father-in-law, and you know, just today, his his back. He's had um, he had an injury as a kid, and so he has kind of episodes of back pain every so often, but his back pain has been, been kind of acting up a little bit. And today he said like, it's always right around 20 K that it starts. And I said, we should start stopping at 19 then. <laughs> that, 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 that's it. That's exactly right. And then the other part of his life, you said he was a banker. Is he still working? Yeah. Okay. Be very cognizant of how he sits doing his banking. Make sure he's using a lumbar support, etc., which may not uh, be perceived at the time as doing too much. But what you are doing is building more road bike capacity. Got it. People think, oh, it's, to, it's just to make sitting more comfortable. No, it isn't. That's part of it. It's to build training capacity to allow him to do what he loves with you for 20K or 20 miles, pardon yeah. me. Yeah, makes makes sense. 
Professor McGill, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think the audience really got really got a lot of information, real real earful today, and I'm I'm glad we could deliver that to them. And and I appreciate your uh, just willingness to share all your wisdom and and go off on tangents with me because I like to ask those those mammoth questions. You, you, you do. Uh, they're. Um, well, you, on one hand, you give me a lot of latitude, but it's difficult to hone in sometimes. But uh, right. I just want to anyway, make sure I give I, you I, enough I, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, very enjoyable, and uh, you're you're a, a very uh, uh, a sort of cerebral and thoughtful kind of guy, Joe. You 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 really I, I know that you know your stuff. And uh, when I agree to do a podcast, I usually do a little bit of research on who it is I'm speaking with. So uh, I, I learned uh, a fair about uh, about you. And uh, anyway, you're very good at what you do. Hey, thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate that. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. And, and where can people find BackFit Pro, Professor McGill? Well, uh, if you go to backfitpro.com, uh, we have uh, oh, a whole host of uh, articles and podcasts and whatnot. My uh, books are uh, available there and uh, our courses, which have all been canceled because of this virus uh, pandemic, uh, those are just about to come online. So uh, okay. it'll actually make them more available to people around the world. That's terrific. And you've got a certification for uh, clinicians and also personal trainers. Is that right? Is there a separate? Is there that, it, it is not separate. Okay. No. To be good with backs uh, is uh, it's non-negotiable and we don't care what your background is. What we care is that you know how the back works, what are the pathways to pain and how to match an appropriate uh, therapeutic approach to a specific back pain mechanism. And it always involves movement. And I've already given you my opinions on the role of trainers in all of this. So yes, we have uh, the full spectrum of medics, but we also have uh, outstanding trainers who uh, are making a difference in changing the lives of back pain people. That's terrific. And and for those listening, we will link to all of this in the show notes, both Dr. McGill's books, as well as his website and links to the certification as well, the McGill method. Thank you again, Stu. And uh, I will hopefully chat with you again soon. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. For the show notes for today's episode, head on over to coachjoedi.com and click podcast from the menu. If you'd like to leave a review, which I would absolutely appreciate on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you found this show, please do so. These mean the world to me. They help me understand what my audience is gaining from these shows that I'm pouring my heart into and ultimately helps us to reach more people because these platforms like shows that get reviews. So it helps us out so much. If you're digging the shows, this would be so great if you could just leave a review. Also, I still give away $150 every two weeks to kettlebellkings.com to somebody that reviews my show. So if you leave a review, just 
screenshot it and email it to hey at coachjodi.com and my team will enter you to win this $150 gift card so that you can outfit your home with a couple of kettlebells on me. Also, when you're in the show notes, you'll find links to any products that we discussed. For full transparency, some of these links do contain affiliate links. This helps me to fund these episodes, pay my staff, and ensure that I'm taking care of the people that take care of us. So I absolutely appreciate you clicking links and using codes. It helps keep this train on the tracks. All right, guys, until next week, thank you as always for listening. I really appreciate you guys subscribing and listening to this show every week. I really put a lot into them. So thank you so much. And you'll hear from me again next week. Take care.